Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cindy. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, the title of the message today is The Second Coming of Christ. The Pew Research Group has done a survey on how many people believe that Jesus Christ is returning. And when I hear the name Pew Research, that sounds like a survey that could only be done in church, right? You've got to be sitting on a pew, but that's not what the organization is about. But they did a survey where they asked a couple of questions. One, they asked, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again? And among Christians, 79% said, yes, we believe that Jesus is coming again. To which I asked the question, what do the other 21 think? 21% of them claim to be believers. What do they think? This is as good as it gets? That Jesus isn't coming back? Read your Bible. The other question they ask is, when is he coming back? And certainly we're not picking dates, all right? But I was interested that if you combine the two categories, in fact, they asked, do you believe he'll return in the next 40 years? And this survey was conducted in the year 2010, so we're talking about 2050. By the year 2050, how many Christians think Jesus will return? And if you combine two of the categories, definitely and probably, 47% said we believe either definitely or probably that he will return by the year 2050. Now here's what I have to say about all that. He's coming back whether you believe it or not. Even the 21% of Christians, and how about the non-Christians? This survey just dealt with believers. This just dealt with people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. How about the rest of the world who would say, no, we're not believers in Christ, and no, we don't think he's coming back. In fact, in May of this year, the Huffington Post had an article, and the article basically was blaming conservative Christians for something. Guess what they were blaming conservative Christians for? We're not doing enough about global warming. And they blamed the belief in the second coming of Christ, which I suppose in their mind they're thinking, well, if these people think that Jesus is coming back, I don't guess they're worried about protecting the planet. And folks, I just want to say, I think believers, we ought to be at the forefront of protecting the planet, certainly. But if you think this is global warming, <laughs> there's coming a day when this earth will melt with intense heat. And it ain't going to be about whether you're driving a hybrid or not. It's not going to help. You can have an asbestos suit. It's not going to help. Everything's going to melt. And so let's look this morning at what does the Bible say? about the second coming of Christ. I've been teaching through the book of Revelation, and there's 22 chapters in Revelation. I've had 18 Sundays counting Labor Day, okay? I haven't got quite there yet, but how do you preach through 22 chapters in 18 weeks? Well, you skip some stuff. We've hit the high points, but just to remind you how we've gotten to where we are in chapter 19. In the first chapter, we see John banished to a prison island called Patmos. We believe at this point... John was approximately 90 years old, somewhere close to 90 years old. The, the really last remaining disciple, if you go back and study the history of the disciples, they were all by this time had been put to death because they wouldn't recant their faith. And in some horrendous ways. Well, John, they think, well, we've dealt with him. Let's stick him over there. Nothing can ever happen to him. He actually writes the book of Revelation from this island because he has a vision. Jesus visits him on the island of Patmos, and he says to him, Write down everything you see. Jesus is about to pull back the scroll and allow John to see what will take place 
How would you like that job? Think about all that John has seen, and so often John has had to say, it was like this. Why does he have to say like so much? It's because John's seeing things he'd never seen before. He had never seen some of what, you know, the, the, the judgments and, you know, the seals that are being, uh, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, the wrath of God. He'd never seen any of that kind of stuff before. And the images you're going to see today, John has to say sometimes it sounded like this, it looked like that, because that's the best he could do. So John has written, and we have walked through the letters to the seven churches, and we have walked through this scroll in heaven, and the seals, the seven seals, and they're broken. And I said all heaven begins to break loose. And really in a very short period of time, a lot happens. In fact, sometimes something happens and then they back up and tell you what was going on simultaneously to when that happened. That's where we are today. What we've gotten to today is the armies of the Antichrist, the beast, have amassed at a place called Armageddon. And we have seen last week this great harlot that had been in, it was really symbolic of a city that was just anti-God and was pro-Antichrist. We've seen the false prophet, and we've seen the false prophet make the world create this image to the Antichrist and made everybody worship the image and even take a mark upon their body, either their forehead or their hand, that says, hey, I belong to the Antichrist. Then he even made it appear as if this image was talking. And it's the image speaking, this animated image that tells everybody, take this mark upon you. You couldn't buy anything, couldn't sell anything. We've seen the judgments then come upon them. And so we're backing up and we see in verse 1 of chapter 19. Let me read just the few first few verses as we get started. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. What's happening right here as Armageddon is taking place is this scene in heaven of an unrestrained celebration. What are they celebrating? Folks, they have been, heaven has longed for this day. We see under the throne, under the altar, the souls of those who have been martyred for the cause of Christ. And they had asked the question early in Revelation, how long, God? How long will you wait to avenge our blood? How long will you wait to send Jesus to end this? And they were told just a little while longer. And folks, it was just... A little while longer. And so now as they see that day approaching, they say, Hallelujah! That's a word we use in church a lot. What does it mean? 
Well, simply it means praise the Lord. It's two words, Hallel, and which means to praise, or and then the word Yahweh, which they shortened to Yah, and that's the word for the Lord. That was the name of God. Praise the Lord. It's interesting to know this. This word is not used anywhere in the New Testament up till Revelation chapter 19. And in six verses, it's used four times. And that's the last time it's used. The significance of that is this. They hadn't had anything to say hallelujah about yet. But they got something to say hallelujah about now. In fact, I want you to know the literal meaning of the word hallelujah means this. It means foolish celebration. When I, when I was studying that this week and recognized what does foolish celebration look like? I was reminded of the story of David when he came back into the city of David with the Ark of the Covenant. His wife is looking from a window and she sees him. He has stripped down and is just dancing in the streets because the Ark is being returned to the people. He's dancing in the streets and it says that she despised him. And after this foolish celebration he goes to bless his household and in second samuel chapter 6 verses 20 through 22 just listen when david returned to bless his household michael the daughter of saul came out to meet david and said how the king of israel distinguished himself today can, can you get the picture of that i just get this you know she just stand there tapping her foot how you distinguished yourself today you've made us a laughing stock I, i'm not doing it good Picture Medea, you know. <laughs> How you have distinguished yourself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the foolish ones, shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, I love his answer. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord of Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become more lightly esteemed than this. In other words, you thought that was bad? You just wait. Folks, that's what happens when you truly worship God. You don't care about what other people think. In fact, the word he uses for lightly esteemed literally means to think nothing of himself. So what David's saying is, you just don't get it. You don't get, how could I not celebrate recklessly when the Ark of the Covenant of our God is brought back where it belongs? Folks, same things happen in Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah! That's what all of heaven is saying. This throng of people, millions are saying. Hallelujah! Recklessly, unrestrained celebration. Why? Because, folks, it's about over. What the saints have suffered, what the earth, for crying out loud, has suffered at the hands of the devil, the dragon, the antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, and the harlot, by the way, which they've disposed of, it's over. And they are celebrating. And here's how they celebrate. This is part of their words of worship. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation, literally rescue or safety. Glory, hard word to define. It, it, one way of defining glory is the honor resulting from a good reputation. God's the only one that deserves glory. You and I have none. 
But part of their worship in heaven is salvation. Finally, it's over. Glory and power belong to our God. Listen, what the Antichrist had been doing on earth looked powerful. People were impressed with his tricks. He was an imposter. Claimed to have been put to death and come back from the dead. Had a wound on one of his heads. But it was, it was a fatal wound that had been healed. Trying to trick people into thinking he was like Jesus. He wasn't. And you're going to see in just a minute how unlike Jesus he is. Power belongs to our God. Folks, that's worship. In fact, one definition for worship is this. Ascribing value or ascribing worth to whatever you consider most valuable. And, and one reason I like that definition is you can worship your car. I don't recommend it. But some people worship the wrong things. You can worship a football team. You can worship a person. I don't recommend it. Well, what you're basically saying is I'm ascribing worth to the thing that I consider most valuable. Folks, listen. Nobody, no thing deserves your worship but God alone. And so when they were praising God, they were praising God for His judgments because they are true and righteous. The word judgment means a decision. Ultimately, judgment means that you have tried, condemned, and punished the person. That's why the Bible says, don't judge others. Why? Because we don't have the final say. It's not my role to condemn you, to punish you, to try you. Now, yeah, I make decisions. The Bible also says a righteous man makes judgments about all things. I make decisions about things based on what the Bible tells me. But I don't judge you. That's alone God's. And judgment is coming. He's judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her, her immorality. He's avenged the blood of her servants on her. And then for the second time we hear this word, hallelujah. Why? Because the smoke is rising up eternally. <laughs> Basically meaning that the judgment pronounced against her is forever. It's unrevocable. And it's final. And so the heaven is celebrating and the 24 elders fall down. We've seen that before in Revelation 4 and 5. The 24 elders around the throne, the four living creatures, fall down. And everybody is encouraged to join them. A voice comes from the throne says, give praise to our God. Hey, join us in worship, all of you. His bondservants who fear Him, both the small and the great. And then I heard a voice like the voice of a great multitude. And last time saying, hallelujah. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty reigns. The word almighty means all ruling, absolute, sovereign, and he reigns. It means he rules. There was a time there for just a few years. In fact, really just three and a half years, 42 months, that it looked like the Antichrist was all powerful. But his time was short. And folks, he knew his time was short. And when you know your time is short, what do you do? Full court press. You pull out all the stops. You go for the gusto. And his day is over. Then the scene shifts. And here's what John hears, beginning in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We've been told throughout the New Testament that there's coming a day where the bride of Christ, which is the church, that's us, the redeemed, the believers in Christ, will one day be invited to this marriage. We are wed, ultimately, to our Savior, to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ. Weddings in the first century, ancient days, had basically three components to them. The first was the betrothal period. And sometimes, teenagers, you may not like this, but sometimes you had nothing to do with it. It was just your parents got together and said, my son's going to marry your daughter. And it worked out. <laughs> and some of you are kind of thinking, I'm okay with that. This whole dating thing's for the birds. But some of you are scared to death who mom and dad would pick out, wouldn't it? But whether it was mom or dad or whether it was a man who would go and sit down with the father of the bride, and say, I would like to have your daughter's hand in marriage. Would you give me permission? And they would work out the details of that, and they would sign a contract. And from that point on, they were betrothed. In fact, the only way to get out of the betrothal was divorce. Remember when Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Weren't married yet, but Joseph, when he found out she was pregnant, was going to send her away with a decree. He was going to basically write her a statement of divorce. And this betrothal period could last a year or two. Why? Because what the man would do would be go back home and work on the place they're going to live. Quite often it was just adding a room to the family house. But while he's working on that room, he's being overseen by somebody. Guess who oversaw his work and finally decided, it's ready, go get your bride? His father. His father would watch the progress of the house during this betrothal period. And he would say, it's finished, go get your bride. And then the bridegroom and the bridal party would come into the streets and they would enter into this wedding feast and these time of celebration and festivities could last a week. And at the end of those, the third step was the actual ceremony, the actual marriage ceremony. Do, do you see the picture of what's going on with marriage? When Jesus says, I go away to prepare a place for you, what's he saying? Contract signed. We're betrothed. We'll be faithful to one another. You've got my promise, but I'm preparing a place. And one day, his father's going to say, go get your bride. And that's what's coming in chapter 19. Jesus Christ is about to get on the white horse and go claim his bride. Well, in the midst of all that, he's told to write. John was told in chapter 1 to write. He was told in each of the seven churches, write this. He's told again, write. I, you know, I'm, if I'm John, I'm thinking, hey, I got it. You told me that in chapter 1. But what is he's about to say is important enough that the angel tells him one more time, write down what you are experiencing. Write down what you're seeing and understand, blessed are those who have the invitation. This is an invitation you don't want to miss out on. Who's invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The church. Not, not First Baptist, First Presbyterian, First Methodist, but the ones who are the children of God, who may go to a variety of churches on this earth, but we're part of the church. 
I've already been invited. I've already responded, yes. My RSVP has been sent. I'm a child of God. I'm not going to miss this. My question to you, in all honesty, to challenge you this morning is, have you responded to the invitation? These invitations aren't going to go out by email right before he returns. They're going out now. Anytime you've responded or had an opportunity to respond to the gospel message, you're being invited ultimately to the marriage feast. What's that going to look like? I don't know exactly. I had a secretary one time ask me a question. She said, Robert, do you think there'll be food in heaven? I said, well, I don't know. I mean, there is. I know there's the marriage feast of the lamb. And she went, oh. I said, what? She said, my kids don't like lamb. I said, no, we're not eating the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. He's the groom. We're the bride. So write all these things down because they're true. And John, overwhelmed, falls down at the feet of the angel. Why? Because what he's seeing is so incredible. And it's so good. It's made his heart glad. He wants to worship the angel. And what does the angel say? Get up. Don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you. In fact, literally, I'm a co-minister of a, from a master. I, I have a master too. And, and one little point of, you know, angels were created. Some people think when we die, we go to heaven, we become angels. We're going to have like wings and harps and little... The Bible doesn't teach that. Hollywood has taught that or maybe flannel graph. I'm not sure, but we've gotten this idea that we're going to be angels. No, the angels have been created. There's millions of them. You're not an angel. What are you? You're a saint. When do you become a saint? The day you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that's how we'll experience heaven. And the angel says, don't worship me. What does he say? Worship God. The word most often used in the New Testament for worship is the word proskuneo. It means to kiss toward. And all the angel is saying is, hey, don't kiss toward me. Kiss toward God. Why? Because he and he alone is worthy of our worship, our adoration. Our affection. Blessed are the invited. And then last, this scene. In the time I got left, I want to cover just the scene that John sees. Let me read 11 and following. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed with, in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of lords, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Gruesome scene. What do we see first? We see Jesus. What's he sitting on? A white horse. Why white? At this point, white's not a sign of purity. White's a sign of victory. This is a war horse. In their day, a Roman general, after he had conquered, would ride back into town on a white horse. And it was a symbol of, we have conquered. And so we see Jesus and we see his eyes like flames of fire. The same eyes that looked with compassion on little children. The same eyes that saw the fields that were white under harvest and said, beseech the Lord of the harvest. The same eyes that when he went to the cross were tender toward us. They're not like that anymore. And folks, he's not sitting on a donkey riding into Jerusalem anymore. He's on a white horse. He is coming to take over. And his army is with him. Who's his army? I think it's the host of heaven. I think it's the angels. And I think it's the church. Because we've already seen what the church is wearing when they're at the marriage feast. Same description is used here. But one thing that's missing. This is interesting. The only weapon that is mentioned is the sword. Literally, the Word of God. His army, millions strong, don't have any weapons. Why? Because they're not going to need them. This war that has been coming, <laughs> Armageddon, millions of troops of the enemy have amassed. The dragon, Satan, is there. They look big and bad. If Hollywood did this, we'd look at it and think, wow, this, this, this war is going to last a while. It doesn't last long. In fact, before the war ever begins, there, there's an angel calling out to the birds and said, hey, come over here, because you're about to have a feast. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament and read about this particular day, the birds can't even eat all the flesh. It's going to take seven months just to bury the people that have come to fight against God. And they are all wiped out in about that long. Jesus comes on the white horse. And four times his name is mentioned. The first one is. He's called faithful and true. Literally trustworthy and trustful. Faithful and true. Then it says a name was written on him. Which no one knows except him. Would you like me to tell you what that name is? I don't know that name. Why? Because nobody knows it but him. Maybe we'll find out one day. There's probably been books written on what that name is. Then it's also a name called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven are with him. And he comes with, out of this mouth, this sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. The word rod literally means stick or staff. In the, in the page of the New Testament, we see Jesus as a shepherd. And his staff is one that he shepherded his flock with. Now that staff is about to be used to protect his flock. A rod of iron. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. One of the things I learned on my trips to the Holy Land is there's two things that they have to press in the Holy Land. One is olives. The other is grapes. And they have to do them entirely differently. Olives are pressed with a heavy stone. In fact, quite often they'd have this huge circular trough with a stone in it and a stick coming out that a donkey could be placed on, and it would just crush the olives. And then they would put them into an olive press. And the, the first pressing would be extra virgin olive oil. 
But they would keep pressing it all the way down to where finally it was just olive oil that was basically used in lamps or for other things. But grapes were treated differently. I didn't know until somebody told me over there, why do we, why, I've never done it, but why do they press grapes with their feet? In fact, not just their feet, but barefooted. Anybody know? Because you don't want to break the seed of the grape. You want to break the seed of the olive because there's a little bit of oil even in the seed of the olive. You break it all and you extract the oil from it. But you don't even want to be clunking around even with your shoes on in the grapes because if you crush the seed, it becomes bitter. And so this is indicating that Jesus is about to squeeze out with his feet the full wrath of God. And who is that full wrath of God poured out on? It's poured out upon those who have accepted the mark of the beast, those who have rejected. And folks, throughout Revelation, the gospel has been preached. There was 144,000 Jewish witnesses. There were two witnesses. There was even an angel flying in mid-heaven speaking the gospel, and people had rejected it. And the Bible says that we are not destined for God's wrath. But folks, one day God will pour out the fullness of his wrath. What an awful In fact, as they, are, as they are killed on this battlefield called Armageddon, it's the Valley of Megiddo, as they're killed, their bodies are left to lay, which is the ultimate indignity. Even today in the Middle East, they bury bodies very quickly because just to lay around is just the ultimate humiliating thing that could happen. And not only do they just lay around, but the birds come and pick their flesh. In fact, it says the birds become full. They, they are just full of the flesh of these people that have been killed. The false trinity has assembled their army and they have been wiped out in just one word. Remember Jesus when he was coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane and they were coming to arrest him to take him to the cross and Peter thought, well, I'm going to protect you. You know, he grabs the sword and cuts the dude's ear off. Remember what Jesus said? He said, did you not know that I could have called 12 legions of angels, like 72,000 angels. If Jesus wanted to, he could have spoken the word then and never went to the cross. There's only one problem. You and I are in big trouble if the cross doesn't happen. It's because of the cross that you and I can have eternal life. You can spend eternity with God in heaven. It's because of the shed blood of Christ that paid the penalty for our sin. But folks, at Armageddon, it's just going to be a word. The sword of the Lord, the sword that comes out of his mouth is going to cut quickly. And I don't know what the opposing army is going to think if they think, hey, we got a bunch of people. They're all wiped out in an instant. And the birds fill their stomachs with their flesh. Folks, what an exciting day that's going to be. My challenge to you as we leave today is not just to learn the teachings of the book of revelation but it is how have you responded to the gospel message let's pray together bow your heads with me father what an exciting thought to catch a glimpse of the church at the bride at the marriage feast of the lamb god thank you that the invitation has gone out in fact for some today it may be going out right now as you invite people into a personal relationship with you Revelation 19 says the bride had made herself ready. God, the only way we can be ready 
is because of you. So, Father, I pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. And, God, for those who do know you, would you use us to tell others the good news? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing just a closing chorus. I invite you.